1: How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Connor Busick, the Richard M. Moran head coach of men's lacrosse at Cornell University, to the Philocrosse podcast. Connor, so fired up to have you on board, man.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. Excited to talk.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, first time head coach, it's like drinking from a fire hose, right? I mean, um, how's everything going? How are you feeling?
0: It's been a, uh, a hectic couple of weeks, certainly since we got back and really since I got the job. Um, but, you know, it, it's a uh, Great opportunity, you know. I, I certainly uh, that we're working long days. We're trying to figure out how to manage the COVID situation and the guys being back on campus, and, and obviously that's you know kind of rolled into recruiting and how this year is a little different than most. But certainly, you know, trying to make the most every day and uh, you know one step in front of the other. That's the only way we can deal with this. It feels like right now.
1: Well, congrats on the uh, on the job, and it's uh, it's really cool that Cornell hires from within so often. This is what the third or fourth time in a row that that's happened.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think this is um, really since Petro was the last outside coach, and so that was uh, late '90s, early 2000s, and then since then it, it's been hired from within. But you know, I think there's something that that's pretty unique about our program. I think the way we do things is different than a lot of other programs. And not to say it's better or worse. You know, I'm biased. I've been here a long time now, and and I certainly think it it pays dividends here. But um, it, it's unique when you look back at our culture and our history and our tradition. You know, the same things that you know, uh, Mike French and Eamon McEnany and that group held dear in the 70s. It's still the same things we talk about the same way we recruit. And so it's pretty cool that our identity has been so solidified over the years and it makes our job a lot easier at the blueprints already here. We just have to make sure we follow it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, um, let's do what I usually do with guests on the show and talk a little bit about the lacrosse journey. Unlike some of my prior guests that might be 45 minutes into their journey, and it's still 1991. Your journey is uh, really kind of just beginning, but I'm psyched to, to chat about it before we get into talking more about Cornell. So you grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, I believe. And uh, tell us a little bit about your high school and how you got, ended up at Cornell.
0: Yeah, so both of my folks um, are, are from upstate New York. They both uh, are from the Orchard Park area, just outside Buffalo. And so um, for me growing up, I, I went back, just about every summer there wasn't a whole lot of lacrosse in Cincinnati when when I was first starting and so uh, I was going back and staying with my my grandparents in Orchard Park for a month two months at a time just to, to go to summer camp you know coach Tondo there did a great job with every yeah. Tuesday and Thursday was summer camp and so uh, I'd go stay there and play and hang out and um, you know kind of fell in love with the game there and then uh, you know grew up in Cincinnati uh, played football and lacrosse at St. Xavier High School and Um, you know had a blast and then kind of the opportunity arose to you know to to play at the highest level and for me you know always had a a soft spot in my heart for upstate New York and um, you know to be honest with you when I was going through this process I I didn't think I was an Ivy League guy you know I I had this uh, thought about you know what the Ivy League was and the type of people that were there and I didn't think I necessarily fit and Um, you know fortunately for me Cornell had just lost the national championship when I was getting recruited so uh, when I stepped foot on campus and saw the way these these guys did things and had an opportunity to hang out with the team uh, I think all my preconceived notions got uh, thrown out the window pretty quickly you know it was a group that was hardworking and diligent and uh, excited about doing the work together.
1: So are you a Bills fan?
0: Huge Bills fan.
1: They, the Bills want to know. My wife is from Williamsville, so uh, okay, nice. she's fired up. And I'm a Pats fan. Okay. So, Ow. you know, she's had Ow. to live Ow. with that for 20 years. <laughs> but um, but it, it's got – payback Payback can be difficult. And this year, the Bills are pretty good. And uh, we'll see. We'll see how the Pats are doing. They're, they're looking
0: good the last week. They, they're feeling the drop-off, but it didn't look like any drop-off
1: as of last week. No, not that big. But we'll see. It's a, it's a long season. Last year, we looked pretty awesome on game one, too, when we had uh, – Ab, <laughs> but then the wheels fell off. Some um, back to uh, saying Xavier. So um, in youth lacrosse, and when did you start playing? And who were your high school coaches and mentors as you grew up um, as a youth and high school? Player?
0: Sure. So I started playing I probably five or six years old, um, and so you know as I was going through, obviously you know Coach Tundo was someone who coached me from the time I was a little kid until uh, even through high school through the summers. Um, in, in high school, I played for uh, you know a couple different staffs actually. Um, but certainly, you know, by my senior year, it was cool. My dad was on staff and he was coaching, um, nice. but played for uh, Pat Kalora and um, Fred Craig and, uh, and a little bit for Nate Sprong, even towards the very end there. So uh, all guys that, that I look up to and, and, you know, really shaped who I was and how, how I kind of grew into a leader. You know, I think uh, they, they all had a little different outlook on it and different personalities. And it's cool to still hear from those guys to this day. Um, you know about whether it's recruits or whether it's just checking in, whether it's congratul- congratulatory text. Um, certainly, guys, that that certainly all had their own hand in kind of shaping who who i would become and the player that I was. That's awesome.
1: I hear from uh, Coach Sprong pretty regularly. He's a subscriber to the uh, JM Three Coaches content, which is pretty sweet. And uh, he's got some he's got some studs coming through there, uh, even you know to this day. Yep. Yeah, pretty awesome. Um, so, did you get recruited by? By Tambo or Coach De, more Coach DeLuca, I guess, right? So I was
0: Tambroni, yeah. Um, realistically, uh, probably a little more Coach George Alice even than, than DeLuca, but uh, obviously all, all were on staff at the time and committed to Coach Tambroni when he was still at Cornell.
1: That's awesome. Um, I remember that 2009 championship. I was like – I was seriously sick to my stomach because I've, I've known Jeff for a long time. His wife, Shell, was in my wedding and my wife was in his wedding. Uh, okay and, uh, yeah, they were, uh, buddies back in, in the Yale days. Uh, my wife is sports information. And when I met her, uh, as a, an assistant coach at Yale, um, and a man, I wanted them to win. Oh, it was just, uh, it was, it was an Epic game and it was a, a difficult end, but, uh, but exciting nonetheless. So you ended up getting there in, uh, like the fall of 2012 or something like that is about right.
0: Correct. Yeah. Fall of 2012.
1: Yeah. So, uh, give us a little rundown of like, you know, the culture at Cornell, um, and then let's relate it late, a little bit later into sort of, how, you know, how it was with coach Tambroni, how, how it evolved with coach DeLuca and, and then how it is with, with, with the way you're trying to build it and continue. Sure. It
0: yeah, I think, you know, to, to put it, um, you know, simply it's working as hard as you possibly can with no expectation or reward, you know, it's kind of just showing up and continuing to, to, you know, swing that hammer and try to, you know, it's one of those things that, that. When you show up and you're not necessarily seeing the output sometimes and you're not seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel, it's tough. And I think I struggled with that my freshman year. You know, everything is very buttoned up. The expectations here and the standards are high. You know, you're on time for everything and you're wearing the exact same things and you run in tight twos and, you know, your shirts are tucked in. There's a little bit of a military aspect to it. And, when you know, when you're a young kid and you're coming from a program that, uh, you know, you were the guy, you were the best student, you were the best athlete, and then you're kind of playing catch up a little bit on all those fronts, but also trying to focus on the smallest detail and making sure that you're wearing the right socks to work out. And you know kind of the schedule going up and down like it does in the Ivy League. Uh, I struggled with it at first. You know, I had a tough time kind of buying into it and understanding that you know you can focus on all these things, then just kind of focus on the inputs and let the outputs take care of itself. But you know you're getting so bogged down in the detail sometimes you know you forget how to play the game, you know, you're thinking about other, so many other things. And so, uh, you know, it was certainly an uphill battle for a lot of my freshman year for me to, to get my feet under me to understand um, that this was the right fit for me, honestly. And then um, as I kind of, you know, let go of what the outcome would be and kind of bought into the system and, and let it kind of, you know, take me over to show up and, and do what you can, be a great teammate, be supportive, be enthusiastic, bring the right effort and energy every day. Um, the rest kind of takes care of itself. And that's kind of been, uh, the roadmap for me every, ever since. And certainly something that I've been able to follow and hopefully pass along to the guys younger than me.
1: So you're a three-time all American. Um, and tell me how the Cornell, you know, tell me about the, the, the best seasons that you guys had.
0: Yeah. So that's he hit on the head. So my freshman year, our first two road trips, I didn't even make the travel roster. I was uh, struggling to say the least, and I was not playing good ball. And, uh, Kinda of had had a turnaround between my freshman and sophomore year, went on to to have uh three All American seasons after that. Um, but some of the, you know, my sophomore season's one that that will always stick out to me. Um, it was a final four trip. Obviously, that that's what you dream about growing up playing this game. You want to play it on Memorial Day weekend, you want to have a shot at a national championship and you know, playing with that group uh with Panella at X and Mock and Donovan and Bambergunnian and English and Basically, that that group was it was as fun as it was as it could yeah. be to play because it just everybody was selfless. we were there to, to win games and to share the ball and to do the right things, and um, so that was a good one. You know, we went on and uh, probably the next most memorable um, game that that usually comes to mind is my senior day. We were playing Princeton at Cornell, and uh, it was one of those days where everything seemed to feel like it, it was finally nice out in Ithaca. It was beautiful. It was you know first weekend of May, last weekend of April. Uh, everybody's folks were in town because it was senior day. Uh, we were feeling the vibe and we showed up and laid an egg to start. We were down five, nothing at the end of the first quarter. And uh, it was, it was one of those cool moments where we talk about facing adversity. We talk about facing challenges at a place like Cornell. We talked about doing it together. And uh, there was not a single guy in the, in the huddle that was panicked. There was not a single guy that was concerned. You know, it was one of those pretty quiet, solid, all right, let's go do this. And so I think before, you know, we were seven minutes into the second quarter. We were up seven five, six five, 5 and ran away with it, one 10 And so uh, I think that was one of those defining moments where everything that you did over four years kind of built up to that moment where, hey, you know, it was time to basically, you know, put up or shut up. And we were able to, to pull together and, and win the game in a significant fashion, you know, to kind of take it over. And so that's one that I look back on as a, a pretty cool moment that wasn't maybe a Final Four or one of those big games, uh, just a yeah. regular cheesy game.
1: Really cool. Huge uh, transformation from freshman to sophomore year, and I'm sure you just got a lot better from, you know, sophomore to senior year. What was the player development like for you, and, and, and who would you kind of give credit to for really bringing you along, whether that was older guys on the team or coaches?
0: Yeah, uh, I think, you know, it was certainly a combination of both. Uh, I think a lot of it was, again, understanding this culture, which, you know, uh, I credit all the guys that came before me and that staff for instilling that in me because, you know, I thought I worked hard. I thought I understood, you know, how hard you had to work to be successful at this level. Um, and I, I don't think I did. I, I think everybody's got, everybody thinks they work hard, right? I think yeah. that's the, probably the biggest misconception out there is that, you know, when you look yourself in the mirror, if you don't know what, what the next level is, then you, you always think you're, you're kind of hit it even if you're not. So that was something for me coming to the realization that, Hey, There's a lot more left I can be doing. I think what was the biggest transformation, Um, but, you know, working with, um, you know, my freshman year was Matt Rukowski and, um, you know, my next three years were were Matt Kerwick, Um, but working with those guys in, in the skill development and the understanding of the offense and trying to get in front of the screen as much as I could to understand what's going on, you know, to see the game through a different lens um, cause the film doesn't lie, you know, and the little things that you can pick up of getting a guy like that in front of the screen, just to talk one-on-one with you. If you're just focusing on that part, uh, goes a long way. And it's something that i brought into my coaching life now. Um, but then on top of it, you know, having guys around me that were superstars, you know, the cool part about this place is I think if we bring in the right people like we have for a while now, they challenge each other. And so my roommate was Matt Donovan. So my freshman year while I was sitting at home, he was the Ivy league rookie of the year. And I think that pushed me to be better because, you know, always being the guy, all of a sudden I had to figure out how to be a teammate pretty quickly because my best friend was doing great things on the field and I couldn't be sour and upset about why I wasn't playing or why I wasn't getting on the bus. But, you know, you had to support those guys. And certainly it pushed me to work harder and to be better and to try to support those guys, but also compete with those guys in a friendly manner in everything that we did. So um, I think it was a combination of both. And I think any good program, has that between the coaching staff pushing it and the players having a positive social pressure to, to do better
1: for sure it's been said over the course of years that one of the hardest trends, uh one of the hardest um transitions is going from high school to college and scoring goals out of the midfield which probably is, is was part of the issue i mean like with donovan it was not, like, harder to get used to the culture and the expectations of hard work, but it was a similar – the skill set that he had developed as an attackman translated pretty well, especially when Rob Pinnell was feeding him. And so for, for midfielders where you got to generate offense and in high school where you can just kind of run by everybody and just stick shots on, you know, from all different angles. Um, do you have any thoughts on – on- that
0: even a step further for you. Yeah. I came in as an attackman. Oh, wow. I was an ex-attackman in good. high school.
1: Wow. So you did have the, uh, the rollback, turn, come around, question mark, rocker step skill set.
0: I wouldn't say I was the most fleet of foot coming out of high school. As you can still see, even to this day, downhill is a lot easier for me than, uh, than maybe change of direction was. Uh, you know, I like to bully guys at the island. But, um, you know, it was one of those things that the ball was in my stick 100% of games, basically, uh, in high school. And so it was certainly something that I had to learn to play within a system. You know, mm-hmm. no, no disrespect to Ohio lacrosse, and it's even taken leaps and bounds since I graduated. Yep. But, I, you know, we just weren't surrounded by the depth of talent that I think a lot of other um, maybe, you know, more uh, hotbed areas are. Um, and so that was something I had to get used to getting to this level. The ball's not in your stick more yep. than 20% of the game. So how do you play the other 80% as well as you play that 20%? And so I think that was a big part I had to round out. Um, and then on top of it, you know, just getting better at, at dodging and getting downhill and creating separation and space and understanding the concept that at the midfield, you're not actually, you don't have to beat anybody. You just have to beat an approach, right? You don't have to break somebody down. You don't have to make them fall over. You don't have to, you know, do anything crazy. You just have to, you know, take what they're giving you, basically make them open their hips and then create a couple of steps as you're, as you're separated.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's really cool that you've gotten a chance to continue your playing career while coaching and, and, uh, a lot of a lot of coaches do that, and it's just amazing actually how much you learn when you're a coach and you're still playing because you really get the best of both worlds. You, you, you're watching film nonstop and you're learning due to the element of explaining and coaching and thinking about it, but you're still playing. So there's you, you get to try stuff and, and you also realize like how hard it how hard it is. How has it been for you? as a guy who, that's been an assistant and now a head coach while still playing at the highest level?
0: I think it's been awesome. I think for all the reasons you mentioned, it makes you a better player. I, I think I see the whole picture much better than I ever did. Uh, honestly, I think, you know, the way I play and, and the system that I coach are, are not always in lockstep, which which is kind of funny. So I think, uh, you know, I get myself thinking about it sometimes that, you know, I get frustrated with myself when I make bad decisions because the same things that I'll, I'll tell my guys over and over. So, Uh, I have to reiterate to my guys from time to time when I'm playing, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, But certainly for me, it's been a cool experience um, to keep that understanding where, you know, there there's mistakes. We play this game in the gray. So how do we teach you to play in the gray? How do we teach, how do we continue to put you in situations that you're making decisions? And I'm not telling you, you do this because this is what you're expected to do, but let's, let's figure out what we teach and then let's figure out how we show you to play the rest. And so that that's been um, a big part of, you know, how I've decided to, to develop our guys uh, at Cornell. Um, and certainly it's been something about, you know, thinking about how I do it, thinking about how I prepare to do it at a high level um, and then trying to put all those pieces together. You know, I'm fortunate to just be around such high level players that think about this game constantly and just be able to bounce ideas off of guys and talk about different situations and think about skill development because these guys are trying to develop themselves. You know, pro lacrosse is not a, you know, seven month, a year, every single day, you know, pro week. It's something that guys go home every week and have to help develop themselves versus, you know, maybe having a coach that's constantly telling you. So these guys that are, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 year vets of this league, they've been doing it at a high level and developing their own their game on their own which is pretty unique.
1: Yeah, totally. How would you say, or what, what would you say have been the the biggest sort of evolutions in your game over, you know, since college, you know, um, from even from MLL rookie till the first three years into the PLL stuff?
0: Yeah, I'd say probably the biggest evolutions is just, you know, being able to see the field better. Yeah. I think being able to make decisions and understand flow has changed immensely and again you know like I mentioned I had only been playing midfield from basically my sophomore year on uh, in college and so I think you know through college I figured out what I could be good at and I was good at it now you know as I made that jump to the pros figuring out all those other pieces of how to play the game at a high level and not just be successful at what you do but how to kind of build out that that skill set you know whether it's just getting better you know I think my offense continuing to get better and I'm six years into my professional career Um, Or just, you know, simple things, playing in transition and playing defense, you know, playing a year in the NLL changed my defensive game forever and allowed me to actually be a two-way player where forever I was just better facing the goal um, than with my back to the goal. So um, I I think, you know, the coolest part about this game is you just keep getting better at IQ. You know, when when I spend every second of every day thinking or talking about lacrosse or watching film, uh, I think that's the part of my game that continues to evolve uh, as much as anything
1: it's, I always think of this word, I love the word fluency for playing sports. And I I feel like there's like, you can hammer out all the shooting and wall ball and footwork and all that you want. But in the end, it's, 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 you kept saying it and using words like IQ and seeing the field and just knowing how to play. Right. Um, And that level of fluency is just huge. And um, is that kind of what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's it. And I think even, you know, I worked on being more fluid in this game and understanding and being able to flow a little better uh, every day because I don't think it's a skill or a trait that that I naturally have. I think I'm a little bit, you know, as far into my career and as successful as I've been, I think I am still a bit of a rigid lacrosse player. And, you know, I do think a certain way. And if I try to like mess up my, my foot pattern or my hands or whatever, it takes me a lot of time to get there. And so certainly I've had the pleasure of coaching some guys that, you know, you ask them to change up maybe a step count or, how they're holding their hands and they just do it. They're able to just be fluid in this thing and just it flows very easily. Um, and so I think trying to learn that part of the game and continue to improve that, that piece as a player uh, has always been a goal of mine.
1: Yeah, because coachability is both an attitude and an aptitude. Yep. There's a uh, great quote from Bill Walsh talking about Joe Montana that he was capable of taking anything and immediately implementing it into his game. Which, again, is both attitude and aptitude. Some guys don't want to hear it. Other people just want to do it, but they just can't do it. And I think that's where the fluency comes in. The more fluent you are, the more you just see it, you get it. You're like, yep, got it. it Yeah. How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philocrosophy podcast, my Inside the 8 podcast, or – my Lacrosse Weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jm3sports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the coaches training program, It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have Division I men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV, and youth. For players, I've created JM3 Player Academies which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created JM3 recruiting portal where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars and other interviews, and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. So let's um, transition into, um, Cornell, current day and um you know and we'll, we'll talk about the last year or two too because i'm sure you're just transitioning what you were doing into what you are doing yeah. um and let's start off with your your philosophies on player development so we are since we were talking about it about you let's talk about now how you want how you develop your players at cornell lacrosse um as far as on the field
0: Sure. I think it it all starts with the environment that you're creating, right? This is a a creative game. Inherently, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make good decisions. You're making, you're going to make bad decisions. And I think making sure that we're not holding guys accountable to, you know, necessarily um, trying to make a play, but just understanding how do we build out a framework that allows these guys to go play? You know, I, I don't want them to play the game the way I want to play the game. I want them to take it upon themselves but within a framework that we're all on the same page. And so we talk about creating an environment that's conducive to success for these guys. How do we put them in a system that they can play within and really take hold of? And so we have a, probably as simple of an offensive system as you can imagine. And, and I like to teach um, dodging and shooting. Those are the two pieces, the you know, bookend this thing. Let's teach how to set up a dodge. Let's teach how to create space. Let's teach, you know, separating out of the dodge, like we talked about a little earlier. Dodges and all these crazy moves and breakdowns and splits or whatever. It, it's, you know, flatten somebody out and then exploding away. And just creating that couple of feet of separation is the difference. Um, and so we like to go through that from every spot on the field to make sure we're, we're creating space. We're not getting jammed up. And so that we're able to, to create offense. Um, and then from there, we want to shoot the ball as well as anybody in the country. So we shoot the ball constantly. You know, 20, 25 minutes a day, we're shooting the ball. Um, and that's because if you can't shoot, you can't score. If you can't score, you can't win games. And so those two pieces are things that we, we teach and we do a lot of, then everything in between is the gray, you know, we want to put those guys in those situations. That's everywhere between the dodge and a shot over and over and over and over again. So that they get to make decisions so that they can feel it out so that they understand space intuitively. We're not saying, Hey, you know, when he comes at you clear through, we're saying, hey, when he comes at you, you've played in this situation enough. You've done two-on-ones, you've done three-on-twos, you've done four-on-threes, depending on the spacing, that, hey, you know when you can put the defender in a tough tough way by just drifting a little bit or giving just a little space, or when drifting, you've gone too far and it's just time to get through. Understanding those things and intuitively feeling those out yeah. instead of just hammering those on film or you know in, in conversation. It, you know, go so much further. And so that's kind of our hope in developing these guys is just to put those guys in similar situations to what they'll be in and creatively making space and uh, odd man situations into understanding for these guys so that they can make those decisions on, the, on their own.
1: When you talk about dodging, you talk about flattening people out. And earlier you referenced, you know, you really just have to be able to dodge an approach. And you talk about creating separation. Can you be a little bit more specific on what those things mean?
0: Sure. And so this is a concept that that I kind of uh, started wrapping my head around a lot. <clears throat> you know, I, I always had thought about it a lot, coming, you know, being the third guy out of the box and, and uh, enjoying the run at the defenseman. Yep. There, there shouldn't be anybody that should be able to stop you if you're running full speed at them, and they're still trying to close and then open and turn and run. Um, and so it, it's an idea that I've always kind of had. And then um, talking with Tommy Schreiber about it while we were playing in Toronto together and having this conversation of, uh, I can't remember. He said one of the announcers basically said that Tommy was a bad dodger in college because he never was actually dodging anybody. He was just dodging approaches. Basically he was just constantly running by someone running at him, which that's the whole concept of it. I don't right. think we have to sit here and, you know, over talk about, you know, a roll dodge, a split dodge, this and that. Let's talk about the footwork to just, you know, beat a, beat a bad approach or create an approach. How do we constantly tee guys up? And, you know, throw on a horizontal pass so that we're already dodging an approach. So from there, it's kind of created into uh, something that's a little more um, exact and specific in ways that we like to work on it. But ultimately, you know, every defense is almost created on the same principle, especially if you're you're looking at a midfield dodge. They're just trying to force you down the alley. So how do we basically use that against them and challenge that top foot so that they can't approach to just run with you? How do we flatten them out, get towards the middle of the goal, basically make them, you know, 50-50 in terms of how they have to approach you and be completely flat. If they have to turn 180 degrees, we're better off running by them than if they only have to turn, you know, 110. And so we like to play the angles game and basically use what the defensive is using against us or trying to do against us to flatten everything out. Let's get to the middle of the field. Let's create separation. And, you know, we're going to end up between the hashes probably more times than not, which makes you – you know, if they got a slider, you're going to shoot. And so for us, uh, all of those things of how we tee up dodges, we call it, how do we get dodges in the right spot with the right separation so that we can run at approaches, you know, time and time again, regardless of if we're going from up top or from X or from the wing, obviously how we teach it changes a little bit, but the concept remains.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your uh, thoughts on uh, physicality as it relates to dodging as far as, after you make a move or in, in ways to get to the middle, get to retain angle, gain angle and get shots off?
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think it, it builds as a series the way we teach it. Right. You start by, you know, we call it getting down the shoot. Let's, let's be running through the pass. Let's be dodging before we catch it. Let's be running by that approach before the ball even arrives. Then as we kind of work through that progression, right, there's the, you know, the move exploding out of the move. Then I think we, we talk about the physicality because obviously, you no one wants to be jammed up. Uh, On that initial move, if you're doing it, you're you're giving too much space and you're letting um, them slow your momentum. Then we start talking about the different moves of, hey, I'm I'm bearing down. They've slid or they haven't slid. How do we react? And so then we talk about the different things of, you know, leaning in, stepping off, bouncing, squaring, getting back across the middle. Um, And so you know those moves that you probably on the hash in 12 yards where you're trying to utilize to regain angle to be physical um and honestly it's a tough thing to to teach because it's exhausting you know it's like playing box when you're constantly wrestling for 30 seconds and you so when you're repping that over and over and over guys are beat up physically and so we talk about how uh we want to use our physicality at the right times and you know starts with step count and then it starts with making sure that you know everything's kind of in line and we're balanced when when we're leaning in and stepping off and then it's the little pieces of when you step off you bounce and actually square somebody up again you give yourself the two-way go and they can't just hop topside and so uh, we try to get into all those little details of the physical part but that again you know is all in a progression series that hopefully finishes in in a shot every time. What's the uh, step count? So you know it's usually uh, a step in a step off and then a flat step if we're going to basically bounce square and then re-dodge. So that makes sense. Uh, it's in, tough and you
1: change the contact. The step out creates separation, and then what was the last part?
0: Flatten out completely. So you step in, you step off, and then you step your front, your top hip back to make it a two-way go again. So they have to flatten. You, you basically take away their ability to hop to the top side, unless they physically jump that way, and then you go the other way, anyways.
1: Interesting. Um, when I think of the word fluency in lacrosse, there should be a, if there was a dictionary and there's like a picture next to it, Jeff teach should be His picture should be there. Um, there's like nobody really that I I've, I've seen that's more fluent. There's definitely guys up there with that kind of deal, but his intelligence, his feel, you know, to go along with phenomenal skill, but, but his skill isn't, isn't so much better than everybody is. In, in my opinion, it's like just how he knows how to use it and do everything. We're on the topic of dodging. Here's a guy that's, I don't know, what is he, 5'11", 170, 65, 170. And yet he is as physical as you ever need to be and can get shots off anywhere, can take a beating like none other. His balance is just off the charts to go along with his vision, of course. But on the topic of dodging, how do you describe what he does and do you think you can teach it?
0: Yeah, I think in general, you know, the the unique part about Jeff and his skill set and his ability, you know, he's not a physically imposing guy. You know, if you saw him, you know, walk around street clothes, you wouldn't expect him to be a world-class athlete um, just by his looks. He's, he's not, you know, overly sized. He's not, you know, crazy muscular, but he's as athletic as he needs to be is the best way I can describe it. He is quicker and faster and stronger than you would ever imagined. And he pulls out whatever he needs when he needs it. Um, and I think a lot of it goes back from just reading posture. He understands contact. He understands the feel of it. He, you know, he does what he needs to because he intuitively understands approaches and, and basically ways to unravel approaches. And so um, certainly he takes a beating sometimes, and, and I almost have to go on him that he's able to do it. He can sit there and post guys up and withstand that beating. And it's a, it's a lot like, um, you know, a playing with Lyle in Florida for a couple of years playing against him when he was at Albany. Lyle's the same way. We're just kind of a wiry build. You know, no one could push him around. He just sat there and took it and, and constantly overpowered guys, um, even if he's not that big of a guy. Yeah. Um, but something similar, I almost have to get on Jeff sometimes to keep dodging. Don't settle for the back down. The back down, you know, he, he wins it a lot. But also that just sets you up that if, if the defender does a good job and is able to, you know, hold you a little bit and slow you up, they can get that slide to you. Let's just keep dodging and let's make them – be moving constantly because I think it puts a little more pressure on the defense, but certainly the ability to do it all at such a high level uh, is a skill that I haven't seen from any attack. Yeah.
1: It's amazing. He, he kind of baits you all the time, doesn't he? He's just baiting. It's like he baits his man with his stick, with his body, baits you into trying to, you know, if, if there's a pick, he'll bait a guy into like, you know, trying to like fight over it. And then they're done. He'll bait slides. he, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and is that something you can teach? Cause that's phenomenal, phenomenal uh, deception.
0: Yeah. I think if I, I figure out exactly how to teach that part of it, I, I think uh, I'd be pretty good at my job. Um, I, you know, I'd like to think that, that we work on it, that we do some things that maybe help improve his ability to do it. Maybe some other guys, he just has exceptional feel. Yeah. He has, ex, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you can teach what you can teach. You can learn what you can learn. But if you don't intuitively feel it, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, an NFL quarterback, say, where they talk about that you don't see pressure, you feel pressure. And so he kind of has that same ability to kind of force guys to step into situations that they're uncomfortable or they're just a little out of position or whatever it is. But he always has the ability to also be reading through it. It's not like he's staring at guys trying to hang him up while he's hanging you up because he's able to do it without really looking at you or the pick, he's able to look through the field and see guys working off of him. And it's so unique to be able to kind of intuitively just walk guys into those situations. And, you know, it's kind of going back to one of your concepts that hang up two man where he, he finds that sweet spot and has obviously done it at a really high level for all of his life playing indoor but he's able to push guys into the spots that they know they're a little uncomfortable and then read through that situation to see what's going on behind it. And it's why he's such an effective passer, you know, at a level
1: that I've almost never seen. Yeah. It's amazing. I just, um, I just thought of something while you were were talking about Jeff T you're going to love this. It's like the Bruce Lee be like water, making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object and you shall find a way around or through it empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. If you put a water into a cup, it becomes the cup. If you put a water into a bottle, it becomes a bottle. I mean, it's like that guy is like shapeless. He just figures out a way to use your leverage against you, but he's got enough strength and athleticism to be able to pop it when he wants to. And it's uh, like you say, you can't teach field.
0: Yeah. It's incredible to watch. I've been fortunate to be a part of it for a while. And certainly, um, you know, hopefully we're continuing to, to add to that arsenal to, you know, regardless of the defenseman or the defense, that they're running against them or however they're using them, Jeff finds a way to, to be the best player in the field. And like you mentioned, you know, he's able to do it with the ball on a stick without the ball on a stick. And I don't think there's too many guys in the world that are, you know, can be your best Dodger or your best off ball guy all in the same game or maybe the yeah. same position, even.
1: And your best feeder. Um, when you talk about shooting, um, you guys shoot a ton. Um, again, we'll use Jeff T because he's just a good example um, deceptive shooting, how much do you work on mechanics and getting it off quickly? And how much do you work on your ability to be deceptive with shooting?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, we talk about different types of shooting a lot and we like to, you know, you can almost liken it to your golf bag, right? We'll use the driver a fair amount. We'll use the the irons a fair amount, and then we'll be using the pitching wedge. And that's what I think a lot more, you know, somewhere between, uh, you know, that, that seven, eight yard range and in is when you're using a lot more of the deception and you know, 12 and out, you gotta, you gotta just hammer it a little bit. So uh, we work a lot on both of it. I think I can continue to do a better job of teaching these guys to shoot more deceptively. Again, we're fortunate to have a lot of guys that are really high level box players and have a lot of experience in the indoor game that, you know, guys learn from one another, you know, just from watching a guy like Jeff or, you know, Clark Peterson or John Donville or, you know, the list goes on and on of, of fantastic box players that we have. Um, watching those guys do it, you know, consistently, our guys get better at it. You know, yeah. I, I think uh, I remember a few years ago, you know, a kid by the name of Jordan Doyak, um was a senior captain for us in 2017, I believe, or 2018. And, uh, you know, I don't think he had that skill set prior. And I don't think, you know, even that year as the offense coordinator, I don't know if I did a great job developing it. But watching him develop over the course of his career, especially through his senior year and getting so much better at finishing and being deceptive when he finished, you know, he was almost automatic from indoors um, and he did not seem to have that skill set coming in the door. And I don't know if I did necessarily much to, to improve it that, that year in particular, but being around those guys, seeing how they do it, watching the creativity, watching the, the subtle shoulder dip or the leaner or whatever it might be, yeah. you know, those guys intuitively, you know, if you, again, create a, an environment that's conducive um, to success and allowing them to try things, allowing them to make mistakes because it's practice, that's yeah. when those guys get better at it. And so I think, you know, you've started to see that from our offense over the years, that they've started to improve at those things. That, and again, I think a lot of that I'll, I'll attribute that to, to the players that we have and the way they teach one another, as much as how much we're working on as an offense.
1: It is about environment, you know, and and, and as, from the IQ perspective, it's about the context of being able to execute skills in context. And as far as the shooting, you know, it's you can't learn to be a deceptive shooter if you're not shooting on goalies. And so, you know, you can you can hammer your 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 driver that way and work on that for sure. But you know, it's those live reps that you're talking about against goalies in context where you can't you actually can't teach it. You can present deceptive shooting to people and explain it. But you can't teach feel, and that's what you've been talking about. Uh, very cool. Um, your offense has been a pleasure to watch. Um, I've loved watching it. I love the way you guys move the ball. I love the way that you, you you don't just attack shorts. In fact, you guys seem to be put shorts on the crease and cut with your shorts more than most programs that I've noticed. Um, can you just talk about your offensive philosophies a little bit?
0: Sure. You know, we, we like to keep it as simple as possible. We honestly we, we run you know a very you know finite amount of things and our hope uh, is kind of like we talked about you know we want to give them directives and a framework to play within and we want ball players to be ball players you know we we want to work on all those little pieces uh, in between the dodge and the shot um, just to get a feel and like you said you see a lot of our guys doing great stuff off ball do we work on it yeah we work on it and put them in situations but. A lot of it's just those guys making decisions at the time and understanding, Hey, intuitively there's space in the middle. I got I can put pressure on my defenseman by cutting there, or I see the two on one here. If I clear through, he's got to decide. He's either going to stay with him or he's going to go with me. And so our guys picking up on those cues, understanding posture, understanding the flow of the, the offense, and then playing with pace, I think is, is the biggest thing, you know, for us um, when our guys understand it, that's fantastic when they're doing it. At a high level, at a fast pace, I think personally on offense, you know, the biggest thing that dif- differentiates between a great offense and a good offense is the pace. You know, there's not a whole lot of people in the world that can play a slow game and still do it at a really high level. I've noticed it with myself, and you look at a lot of great players that, that just can't do it. Obviously, you've got your Lyles and, you know, Connor Fields has a similar style. Those guys that can kind of play at whatever pace and still be really effective. For the most part, let's let's be moving. If we're moving fast and the ball's moving fast, it's a lot harder to guard. And so that's kind of the, you know, the the beginning steps is I want us to be moving at all times. I want us to be dodging hard, moving the ball fast, and then letting those guys be ball players and all that
1: gray. And we've had a lot of success with it. How do you find a balance between, you know, re-dodging, rolling back, and ball movement in that because you can't have, you know, you can't have the balls dying in somebody's stick all the time, but, but you can't, you're just not necessarily going to beat people every time without, without a second or third move. How, how do you balance that?
0: Yeah, I think we, we start with the ball movement piece and then we work in the dodging piece. And honestly, looking back over the years, I can tell you, I don't think sometimes I have done a disservice to these guys because I've encouraged, you know, just forward opposite, almost to a fault. Um, where we're not exhausting our dodges or we're not dodging to score off the initial dodge. And, you know, I've been trying to do my best to balance that. Usually we start with the concept, just get that thing forward. When you draw the slide forward, opposite, let's bang it. Let's make sure we're playing uh, off the ball and creating that opportunity for ourselves. And then trying to work in the, Hey, you know, if they're going a little slower or if you like your matchup, or if you realize that, Hey, they, they hedged and snapped, let's try to re-attack. And so again, trying to, to help them contextualize when the right times are ha, has been a, a big focus of mine as a coach. Um, but starting simple and starting to just, Hey, look through. If it's not there, let's just, you know, bang it forward. Um, and then we start kind of working up to, all right, Hey, you know, you feel an approach is poor. You feel like they're looking away from you. You feel like they're not, they're trying not to go as much as possible. Let's start, you know, re dodging, let's start exhausting our Dodgers and really um, putting them in tough situations. And again, I think it all comes down just to to reading that grade and understanding, you know, certainly we can talk about possession and possession, what a defense is trying to do to us. but let's let's see all of it in practice. Let's understand who we're trying to read. who's who's the guy that's telling you um, whether you're able to exhaust or not? You know, is it the slide? Is it the guy at you know, maybe on the pipe that is he pushing at X and creating a little extra space for you to to see that and to you know redodge because they don't have someone that's taken up that important space? Um, and so it's trying to again balance how we want to be simple and how we want to just make the easy play but also let, let's be lacrosse players let's understand who yeah. we're reading um, and who's going to be kind of that key that hey they're not ready to to defend a secondary dodge or a dodge that exhausts the whole thing to the pipe before i, I bow out and throw it forward
1: yeah um let's let's um Switch gears to two-man game. What are your thoughts on that? How much do you guys, you know, uh, like to use that? Um, and where do you see that going in college lacrosse?
0: Yeah, we like to use it a lot. You know, I, I think <clears throat> for our wings especially, I think we've got kind of a dynamic hybrid of offenses where within one set we end up playing a bunch of different things um, depending on how we play it and how we rotate. And, um, but I, I think for us, you know just getting comfortable in that concept right whether it's two man on the wings whether it's two man at x uh, we don't do it as much from a, a, you know top center but sometimes we do I think a lot of it's just playing again continuing to put guys in those situations so you intuitively understand this is a right angle this is a good time this is how I stalk the picker so I can get down and sit down at a time that's difficult for him to see it and so you know there's a lot of things that we can talk about and give specifics. Hey, we're going to set picks here. We're going to do it this way, but until they intuitively get it and we'll play with it a lot. And we try to, again, like I mentioned, just get creative in ways that we're putting those situations. How do we mess with the space a little bit? How do we mess with the timing a little bit? How do we mess with the numbers within that space so that they understand how to play together? Um, because the, both of those guys have to be on the same page. And our, our picker has to be as in tune to what's going on in that two man game as the guy with the ball and a stick. And when those two are on the same page, it's pretty dangerous. And, again, you know, we're fortunate to have guys that intuitively understand this because of the box background uh, and have a handful of those are on our offensive end. But it's cool to watch the guys that have never played a two-man all of a sudden get better at it because we rep it and because they're playing with high-level guys that are, are saying the right things or doing the right things are encouraging these guys to, to see, hey, you know, this is a free switch, so I'm just going to slip or, you know, they're not switching on contact, so I'm going to stay put here and just create that lane so he can get to the goal. And once we start thinking about it at a higher level and, again, the fluency, when they understand why they're doing it and how to do it because they've done it a few times they're not being told what to do, that's when you start to see high-level lacrosse plays.
1: So, um, obviously, when, when a short picks for Jeff T, he's going to take advantage if they, you know, just like the hang-up two-man stuff that we, we talked about a couple months ago. Um, so – Really interesting stuff. Anybody wants to learn more about that, go to two man game.com. So there's a really cool webinar, but um, I want to talk a little bit about Jeff T setting picks with bringing long to short. Uh, I personally have been thinking a lot about this over the last, I don't know, six months where I think this is an amazing opportunity because nobody really wants to like switch off Jeff T, but a defenseman is definitely going to prepare because they're, they're trained to be able to help and show and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden you know, a player like that is slipping out or if the Dodger slows down enough, they can kind of just sort of sit there in a pocket of space and feed and you've got so much good off ball stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that scenario?
0: Yeah, man. And we started to put that into play more frequently, um, you know, since uh, uh, uh came into play. Yeah. Um, certainly it's, a, it's a, an easier way to play with that, especially if they don't want to switch off Jeffrey. He already understands intuitively those concepts of where to set it, how to set a good one to, to create space in a dangerous area. Um, and so if you're not going to switch it, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Or, you know, if you do switch it, we got the matchup that we're looking for and you don't have a pull shutting off Jeff. So uh, I think over the last three years, we've seen every iteration of that defense possible and, and we feel comfortable. Again, you know, we have a bunch of different options, but those guys can play within the system where I want it to be you know, their call, and those guys do. They do a great job of communicating and talking about it. Um, but when those situations arise, you know, we'll play with both sides of it. And, and I think more times than not, if he's not being shot, we want the ball in his stick to be making that read um, yeah. Yeah. and running off a, a, someone coming to set a pick for him. But certainly it works both ways, and we use him you know, normally at X and two-man games, sometimes off end lines and, and different opportunities to just create a little confusion um, and, and let him, you know, use that IQ and that fluency t- to make a play. And again, I think the guys that that he's surrounded by, especially at the attack, um, are, are high level ball players. I think you yeah. know, John Petilli, Mikey Long. Um, you know, going back to Clark Peterson, you put any of those guys in a two man situation, good things are are, are willing to have are going to happen at some point. So um, we we've been fortunate to have really high-level IQ attackmen um, that, that can play this system. And so, obviously, Jeff gets a lot of the, the attention, uh, a lot of the credit, which, again, he deserves all of it. But I think those guys almost get overlooked where if you look – Well, 2019, I think we're the only attack group that every guy went over 60 points. Yeah. Three guys, yeah, 60, and, um, 65, 70.
1: Piotelli, you know, was kind of a game-changer to, to get an X guy of that ability, even as, like, a, a sophomore. He was just – you know. Yep. total stud. I knew his dad, we played in the Boston Blazers together back in the day. Shout out to Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So um, back to the T-lock thing, though, it's interesting because a lot of people are like, well, just set the pick with Jeff Teed. And and then it's like, yeah, but I don't really feel like giving him a concussion. People are like, they're going to plow right into him. Which is back to why the whole concept of, you know, slowing down and turning it more into, you know, if you watch a guard in basketball, they are not blasting off of picks they are like basically bringing people with them um, and doing it slowly enough that you don't really actually have to risk a a defenseman actually blowing up your picker you know you just don't really want that Um, is that something that you guys have have worked on as far as slowing down with those situations with your shorties let's say there's a shorty on the you know on the ball and there's a guy shutting that short or long doesn't really matter
0: yeah uh, you know, it's a great concept. We haven't really spent a ton of time actively telling these guys to slow down. Again, I think they're getting better at at understanding those just intuitively, but it's not something that we actively preach. And so certainly when the times Jeff's being shut, you know, like we talked about a little earlier in the segment, the coolest part about, you know, his, his game is that he's good at, at all of it. And so, you know, there's no reason to overthink necessarily – you know, hey, we have to use him with the ball on a stick, or we have to use him with the guy who has the ball on a stick. Yeah. There's so many other ways to play it and put our offense together to use that. Again, it's it's the same concept as dodging, right? Being an offense coordinator uh, for a few years at a high level, the whole concept is how do we understand what you're doing and how do we use it against you? You know, yeah. if you're if you're really going that far out of your your defense to play a five-man uh, rotation and to take away one guy, how do we put you in an uncomfortable situation that? either your slides are too long, you're sliding over guys that are closer because that's the concept that works better. How are you managing picks? How are you managing, you know, guys away from the ball and maybe um, chops or, you know, little things going on away from the ball. If you already have another guy, you know, helping the ball side. And so um, try to, you know, prod all of those areas as we're talking about this concept and try to, you know, figure out what, what's going to hurt you, what, what's going to really um, put you in an uncomfortable situation and make it so that, you know, you either stay in it and you, you, you let whatever happened happen, or you just go back to your
1: base defense. The Cornell culture. Let's talk about that. Um, it's uh, I work with uh, Rocco Romero, classic 09. I uh, got to give Rocco a little shout out. Um, you know, you know, a, a culture is great. When Rocco came to work for me at 3d lacrosse, he literally had a picture of Jeff Tambroni pinned up on his cubicle. And I was like, man, what a culture at that program. And, and honestly, I feel like that's really been the, the strength. I mean, you've had a lot of great players and there's been a lot of different coaches, but the, the the culture has really kind of withstood the test of time. How would you describe the Cornell culture and how are you trying to continue to uphold it and evolve it?
0: Yeah, you know, we it, the culture in short, you know, it's about selfless, hardworking, det- determined guys. You know, we want the, the hardest working guys anybody's ever heard of that are great teammates. And when you kind of bring those two things together – you know, the lacrosse piece takes care of itself. Um, and so the way we, we talk about it a lot now um, and kind of our thoughts is, you know, if we focus on the inputs, that that kind of resembles what we're looking for in these guys. You know, if you're an all-the-time guy, you know, we talk about, um, you know, consistency really is toughness. If you show up every single day, you're a tough dude in anybody's eyes. And so how we like to talk about it with our guys is literally the effort, the enthusiasm, the attitude, and the support that you bring every single day is what you're measured by. And that goes from the first guy on our depth chart to the last guy on our depth chart. And the expectation is if you show up and you bring it and you compete as hard as you possibly can, and you know, you're know you there for your teammates, we're going to be fine. And so you know, our culture in a nutshell is talking about inputs um, and making sure that we're willing to hold our guys accountable, making sure that we're willing to uh, you know, be a great teammate. Being a great teammate, a lot of times is just being competitive, showing up on the field. And if your buddy's having a tough day, not taking it easy on them, but going right after them, and you know, making them pay for not showing up to practice, basically. And so, um, it, it's a lot of how we we talk about it within our team and how our guys interact. And I think it leads to a very bonded, connected group. And again, you know, it's something that's unique to our program that this identity's been the same for so long that it even bonds you know, our alums that go all the way back to the national championship years in the seventies to, you know, the recruits that are committed that haven't even stepped foot on campus yet.
1: How do you develop the leadership that you need?
0: So I think that's constantly a work in progress. You know, I think that's something that, you know, we can always do a better job of. And it's something that we discuss a lot. How can we make sure that these guys are developing, you know, and I don't think leadership is something that you have it or you don't. I think you you're, you've got a predisposition that makes you better at it um, maybe at a a more uh, at a younger age, but it's something that needs to be developed and nurtured. And I think the way our program runs is, you know, it's really the seniors and the leaders of the team have a lot on their shoulders. The expectation is as a captain, this is your team. And I think everybody says that, but you know, here more than anything, we, if we have the, you know, little detail oriented rules about you know how your locker looks and and how what you're wearing and what time you show up to places and you know how our locker looks every single night when we leave there's there's probably too many of them for us as a coaching staff to instill so it's really put on our leaders to make sure that they're holding our guys accountable Um, and so I think there's a lot on those guys and so I think you learn a lot of the times by you know falling into line and making sure that as a freshman, you're taking care of yourself. You know, leading as a freshman means that you're making sure you're doing all the right things. You're holding yourself accountable. And as a sophomore, you got to make sure you're looking out for the sophomores. And so this, you know, I'm sure it happens in a lot of programs, but just kind of this waterfall effect that as you get older in this program, there's more expected of you. You're going to have more opportunities to step in front of the group, to have the conversations uh, you know, with the guys younger than you to make sure you're kicking things up the chain. And so um, I think little things go a long way in terms of, you know, jobs and duties we give guys to to bestow a little leadership. And then, you know, making sure that we're having the open, honest conversation. I think the more that we can talk about and our guys can articulate to you what we're trying to do, what we're about, our culture. And, you know, the hope is that when we do that and we tell it to them, they're able to internalize it and give it back that's when I think you start to see leadership because they're bought in and they understand what they're buying into.
1: Awesome. Um, last topic. Um, let's talk about recruiting. So um, what are you looking for in an athlete and a student and in a person uh, as a Cornell recruit?
0: I think all the things that fit our culture, you know, for us to, to be um, the type of group that we want to be and to fulfill the things that, that, you know, are expected at Cornell Lacrosse and realistically to, to rise up to some of those challenges. You know, we want to make sure that we're congruent in our culture, what we're selling to our guys, and who we're recruiting. You know, sometimes um, there's great lacrosse players out there as high school kids that are maybe a little less mature that um, have the ability to grow into the guys that we need them to be. And honestly, for the most part, we, we call around and try to do our homework as much as we can on the front end to know, hey, is this your hardest working, most competitive kid on your team? And if the coach says yes, then hey, well, you know, there's a pretty good chance we'll end up talking to him. If the coach says no, then, you know, we move on. And it, it doesn't matter how good you are or how talented you are, if you're not going to show up and be that guy for us every day, you know, is it worth, you know, pushing you here? And so um, our hope is to, in the recruiting process, um, you know, tell them about the challenges, tell them about the things that are difficult here, tell them about why we recruit them in the first place and, you know, the, their coaches and their teammates and their peers think that they're they're that guy, you know, the all the time guy that shows up and is competitive and hardworking and resilient. Um, and so that's ultimately what we're trying to do. If we find those guys that play lacrosse at an exceptionally high level, it's icing on the cake for us.
1: So, yeah, you, it sort of starts off with with just academics and then you start figuring out, number one, are they the right culture fit? And then you're looking at athletes and skill and IQ. Can you talk a little bit about each of those three qualities and how you evaluate them and, and how it differs, you know, cause not everybody on your roster is going to be six, to 20. You can have some smaller, faster, quicker, other attributes.
0: Yeah. I think IQ is probably first in that, that uh, list for us because of how we've played in the past, specifically in the offensive end. I guess I, I can say I can you know put the two in separate pockets, so to speak, um, how we recruit a defenseman, how we recruit an offensive guy. They have to be system fits, right? You talk about that in every sport and how you recruit, how you draft, how you get guys in your roster. You know, I don't think we're necessarily predicated on being, um, you know, the biggest, strongest, fastest group out there. I think we're, we're fast, we're well conditioned. And so, you know, sometimes we've got guys out there that are a little undersized and sometimes we got guys out there that are just great across players. They're not going to wow you with their athleticism but they constantly make the right play. They understand what they're supposed to be doing. They work at their craft and they understand that gray area. So we're looking, you know, in this process um, for IQ, probably first on the offensive end. um, And then for, you know, effort and really the ability to play within a system on the defensive end, those guys that are constantly just high motor guys, uh, you know, long rangy is always a plus, but realistically guys that are playing within a system that are able to communicate that are understand, what's going on on that side of the ball um, are the two things that are kind of non-negotiables for us. And then the rest, obviously, you know, given two exact same players, you're going to go after the, the more athletic one probably because there's a little more maybe upside or more ability to create separation or, um, you know, guy that shoots a little harder than someone else, that's always great. But I think a lot of it comes down to understanding an IQ more than anything when we're looking at, at recruits in this process.
1: How do you even evaluate IQ? Um, especially given the fact that there's different, you know, you came from Cincinnati lacrosse and you had really good coaches, but you didn't, it wasn't like growing up in Baltimore where there's just better competition, better overall coaching from the youth level all the way up. How do you measure IQ versus what people have been taught or coached?
0: Yeah. I think a lot of it is the ability to just play the game as it comes to you. And again, it's ironic because looking back on it, even when I was in college, that was not my strongest suit. I remember <laughs> Coach Kirk used to tell me, hey, Bruiser, let it come to you. Let it come to you. And uh, so, you know, for us, I want to see the guy that that's able to play within the system. And even if you watch one game and he doesn't jump off the field at you, the guys that we end up recruiting a lot of the times are the guys that over time grow on us. Mm-hmm. Like, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of high-end guys that, that we end up playing here that will jump off the field at you the first time. And there's a lot of guys that end up here that, you know, most guys will watch two or three of their games and probably not see them very often or not, you know, they won't be filling up maybe the stat sheet, but you'll understand that they're, they're the guy that's kind of making it all work. Yeah. They're the guy that's making the right decision. You know, they're, they're scoring more points than they have turnovers. They're not forcing the ball. They're shooting the ball at the high percentage. Um, and so kind of finding a way to, to fit those guys uh, around some pretty high level skill or athletic guys um, is basically the success that we've had here. Um, up to this point with the guys on a roster. And it, it's kind of how we see these guys filling gaps where um, I think a, a good example of a guy on a roster, a, you know, incredibly high level of cross player, I don't think he would tell you he's the you know, fastest or strongest guy around is Johnny Piatelli or, you know, even Jeff Teeth for that matter, right? Um, we, we play with a lot of those guys that maybe don't jump off the field at you because of how big, strong, fast they are. They just play the game the right way and they see yep. the game in a different way. Um, And they manage the game, you know, in a way that's, that's patient um, and
1: calculated. Are there any things that you look for, whether, you know, this summer, obviously it was all film, but whether it's in person or on film that you kind of keep track of, you know, um, drawing doubles and making the right decision, moving it to X or, you know, moving without the ball because these little things, you know, little things win big games. Um, What, what are some of those things that if there's a kid or a coach or a parent out there listening that, you know, that you kind of look for?
0: I think that, you know, the first one is is similar to what we're looking for with the drawing a double, making the right play. I think the smart decisions are something that, you know, I I think when a lot of us play the game, you know, the people that get the most accolades or the most recognized are the guys that have the most points. And so there's certainly that feeling when kids go to recruiting tournaments or showcases that, hey, I got to produce. If I don't produce, you know, coach might not see me. And that's the hope for us is to see those guys. You know, if I'm doing my job well, I'm finding the guys that are playing well within a system and and able to, you know, maybe manage two guys that wouldn't play together otherwise. How do I tie those two guys together um, and make this thing all work as an offense? And like you said, moving without the ball, playing without it. You know, I like seeing guys, especially attackmen, that are multi-tool attackmen. They dodge well, they can feed well, maybe they turn the corner well. But also, you know, when they're playing with a different grouping, are they able to play off ball? Are they able to do a lot of the little things that, you know, again, looking back on this, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been a guy that maybe I recruited because I couldn't play without the ball in my stick. And so uh, ironic to, to look at it that way. But certainly, you know, there's a lot of those high-level IQ guys that, that do those little things that don't get too caught up in trying to make the home run every time. Um, and when you do that, you can kind of buy into a system like we play where, you know, we want to play high percentage offense. I want to see guys that play high percentage offense. And certainly there's guys that you have to try to, you take a, a pretty raw talent that that's big, strong, athletic, skilled, and you try to, you know, ingratiate them in your offense. And so certainly I would want to say we, we turn our, our noses up at any guy that, that plays the game at a high level but takes some chances. But uh, I think you have to build the core of your team with guys that understand intuitively how to play those percentages and how to put your – team in the best possible scenario to, to win ballgames by playing that way.
1: Awesome, man. Well, so, uh, so great to hear you talk about the program and um, I love what you've been doing and I wish you the best of luck moving forward in these crazy times. And hopefully we're going to have a lacrosse season in 2021.
0: Let's hope. No, I appreciate having me, Jamie. It was a pleasure to talk and shop with you um, and look forward to hopefully uh, seeing you on lacrosse field soon here.
1: Definitely, man. Keep in touch. Thanks. All right. Take care.